Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Here's a joke. A guy goes to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I think my wife is trying to poison me. Can you talk to her and find out? The rabbi said, okay, go, come back in two days. The guy comes back two days later. The rabbi said, you know what? I talked to your wife for two hours, maybe three. And I think you're right. I think she is trying to poison you. And if I were you, I would take it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And from 89.3 KPCC in Los Angeles, this is the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you talking points and balmos to help you win your next dinner party. This week's icebreaker came from the funniest behavioral economist we know, Dan Ariely. Thanks, Dan. And later on, we'll be talking with our guest of honor, author Irvin Welsh. But first, as with any dinner party, we start off with small talk. You're going to be talking about the week's news at this weekend's party. Who better to tell you which news is worth bringing up than the people who report it? So I checked in with our colleagues over at Public Radio's business show, Marketplace. Patty Hirsch, senior editor of Marketplace, what's the one story you're going to be talking about at your dinner party this weekend? Well, I think it's got to be the collapse of the Icelandic banks. For one thing, the British government said it was going to bail out a bunch of UK individuals who've got money in these Icelandic accounts. But the really outrageous story was that apparently local municipalities, including the Metropolitan Police, have got millions of dollars in Icelandic accounts. The government isn't going to bail those guys out. So the police in Britain is going to be in hoc to the Icelandic banks, which uh, is just this terrible irony. What is the British police department doing investing in financial instruments? They should invest in guns or maybe new uniforms. Look, financial instruments don't kill people. People kill people, okay? (laughs) Nancy Fargali, super special project editor in Marketplace, in charge of our financial coverage. What's the one story you're going to be talking about? Manny Ramirez why Manny Ramirez. He's old news. He's not, because the Dodgers are probably going to offer him a four-year contract, and they would be stupid to give him that much money over four years. Why do you think they'd be stupid? Because when you think about what the Dodgers really have to build upon, they have a young crew of batters. They need to build up their pitching, and to give Manny Ramirez $25 million over four years, he's in his mid-30s, it just doesn't make good business sense. Uh, You know, Nancy, that's a pretty interesting story, but don't you think that's a little inside baseball? I don't know what to say to that. Stacey Vanek-Smith, reporter for Marketplace. This weekend I'm going to be talking about Joe the Plumber. I just found it hilarious that during the 90-minute debate he came up 24 times. The poor guy, I mean, they were looking up his divorce records and he has a business, a plumbing business, but he's not a licensed plumber, so this could potentially cause all of these problems for him. And he apparently told the Huffington Post that it was quote-unquote surreal to watch this debate where the candidates kept addressing him by name. Not to be a blue stater here, but the fact that Joe the Plumber used the word surreal, I find kind of stunning. (laughs) Well, you know, (laughs) if you're making a quarter of a million dollars, you've got a lot of time to read. Yeah, he probably is a pretty sophisticated art collector. And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our history lesson with booze. We'll start with the history. This week, back in 1792, construction began on the White House. Now, everyone except maybe the pinkos at your party will know (laughs) that's where the president lives. But Yves Tro tells us a few things about it even some patriots won't know. The White House has 132 rooms, and it used to be called the President's Palace. But just because you live there doesn't mean you're always treated like a king. The President's family gets charged for non-business meals they order from the kitchen, and they pay for their own toothpaste. Maybe that's why some White House residents are so thrifty. Lyndon Johnson walked the house every night to make sure the lights were off. 
And during World War I, Woodrow Wilson replaced the groundskeepers with grass-eating sheep. They trimmed the lawn for free, and proceeds from their wool went to the Red Cross. But it's not like it's always sober Squaresville on Pennsylvania Avenue. Back in 1829, Andrew Jackson's inaugural house party got a little crazy. The president hid out in a hotel while 20,000 drunks trashed the place. Jackson's aides finally lured them away by setting out tubs of free booze on the lawn. Amazingly, many of the White House's historic treasures survived that beer bust, although one resident wished some of them hadn't. Mrs. Kennedy, isn't that the famous Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington? That's right. The government commissioned the finest living artist of the day to paint the president. I often wish they'd followed that, because so many pictures of later presidents are by really inferior artists. If you can stand the gauche art, the White House is still a pretty sweet place to live. Residents don't pay rent, mortgage, or taxes on the joint, but it doesn't come cheap. So far, Barack Obama and John McCain have raised over $570 million to persuade Americans to let them move in. So that's the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm talking to Jim Hughes. He is the bartender at the Round Robin Bar in Washington, D.C.'s historic Willard Hotel right down the street from the White House. Jim, what drink does White House history inspire you to make? Well, we, uh, we've been inspired to make a cocktail uh, commemorating all of our uh, 43 presidents. You have 43 presidential <laughs> drinks? We sure do. In fact, the list is much larger than that. And what, what I tried to do is to cut it down to uh, something that was actually uh, drank by our chief executives, as well as drinks that were um, popular at the time. All right. So which of these presidents, I guess, you will, are we going to go with the John Adams since he was the well, first John president? John Adams, uh, a man of his times, and our first chief executive to actually live in the White House, was partial to uh, what was known as brandied rum punch or fish house punch. Fish house punch? Fish house punch, which is a uh, an old American drink going back to colonial times. Oh my, and our forefathers definitely knew how to drink. So how do we make this thing? One ounce of rum, one half ounce of brandy, one half ounce of triple sec, and add to that over ice, one ounce of a uh, lemon sour mix as well as orange juice with a, a dash of grenadine. Shake and then fill with club soda, or if you are um, celebratory, perhaps on November 4th, add champagne. And if you drink enough, even if you're not celebratory, you'll still be proud to be an American. Oh, without a doubt. You know, speaking of politics and booze, Rico, I was watching the debates at a bar the other night, and uh, every time McCain said, my friends, everyone in the bar would go, my friends, and drink. <laughs> Unfortunately, my table was playing the Barack Obama drinking game, which is every time his heart rate went above 30, we were supposed to drink, so he never drank. Oh, man. So, I'm sorry, dude. My friends, if this is all going by too fast, you can download a cheat sheet with all the info from the show. It's at dinnerpartydownload.com. Our guest of honor this week is Scottish author Irvin Welsh. Irvin, you're known for your novels about street life and crime, most famously Train Spotting, and also your new book called Crime, about a cop on the trail of sex criminals. But you're also a playwright, you're a journalist, and you're a DJ on occasion? I used to DJ a lot. I don't so much now. I'm kind of getting too old. They say, who's this kind of creepy old guy kind of chasing all the young girls with this big box of records on his hand, you know? 
but your writing at least seems to be going well for you and which is probably why people tolerate you as a DJ. Yeah. You are in fact in the middle of a book and interview tour for your novel Crime right now. And one of the questions we ask of everyone on the show is, what question are you sick of being asked in interviews? The one that I get asked all the time is, what did I think of the film Trainspotting? If I go through the day without somebody asking me that question, it's kind of a bit of an achievement for me. And uh, if you get asked the same question all the time, your response eventually becomes very stilted. You feel insincere even when you're not being insincere. For the record, I really did love the, the film, but eventually I'll say things like, they messed up my book. You know, uh, Danny Boyle, no talent at all. Ewan McGregor, terrible actor, all this kind of stuff. Just to entertain yourself. Yeah, basically, I think you have to entertain yourself. And that is the beauty of question number one. You just mentioned train spotting. Now I don't have to. Now I've said train spotting twice. Now I just said it three times. Thank you. All right, the other thing we ask everyone is tell us something we don't know about you. Something no one at our dinner party is going to know. Uh, oh, I'm trying to think. Well, one obvious thing is that I'm a fantastic lover. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's a lot of people who disagree with that, though, and you know they, they say they, they say this is absolutely nonsense, you know. And I think, how can you make such a negative judgment on me based on like 30 seconds? Like, you know, you've got to give somebody a bit more more of a chance than that. You know, as a journalist, I'm gonna to have to verify uh, twice, so hopefully you'll be provide me with names after this. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of live in fear of somebody sort of going to one of the British tabloids. Well, I, I'm just going to ask uh, just one last thing. The conceit of the show is about dinner parties and we talk about cocktails and this sort of thing. But I imagine as a successful author, like, do people expect you to do a lot of the heavy lifting at dinner events because you're supposed to be so charming and witty? And Yeah, I mean, I think that they expect me to steal the silverware. So you see them counting forks when I leave. And I think if they've got a full set, they consider that a result, basically. Yeah. So after all these years, successful novels, films, they still eye you suspiciously when you enter the room. Yeah, and even more suspiciously when I go out. Yes, this is the theme from the movie Train Spotting. Apologies to Irvin Welsh. We wanted to seize the opportunity to take this song back from sporting events. If you object, send us an email. Our address is dinnerparty at kpcc.org. So we've met our guest of honor. That brings us to the main course, the part of the show where we learn about food. So one of my favorite spots, Brendan, in California is the Monterey Bay Aquarium. Mm-hmm. It has the greatest exhibits, the most beautiful creatures in the sea. They're Ariella sharks. the mermaid? No, I was thinking more about sharks, but okay. maybe that's me. Okay. Uh, but here's the thing that's screwed up about it. Every time I go there, I get hungry to eat fish. <laughs> <laughs> which is messed up, right? Because Is it's that a, true? Yes. It's, That's crazy. But it's not like when I go to a zoo, I get a hankering for koala meat. Note to self, do not invite Rico to meet my nieces and nephews ever. Good point. Apparently, though, the folks at the aquarium have recognized this phenomenon. This week, they're going to put out a wallet-sized card that tells you which sushi is okay to eat and which are overfished or bad for the environment. I spoke with the aquarium, Sheila Bowman, and I got right to the point. What is the worst news on this list? What is the thing that I almost certainly eat that I really shouldn't be eating? Well, the thing that seems to be most bothersome to people is that on our red list is everyone's favorite unagi. Uh, That's the broiled eel. That's the broiled eel. And I, like I said, everyone seems to really love it. I think it's because it's the least daunting of the sushi items. It's cooked, not raw. Yeah, it's like the steak of sushi, basically. Exactly. It's covered with a nice sauce. It's a very user-friendly piece of sushi. So. And it's overfished. 
not only overfished in its wild environment, but they catch baby eels, put them in farms and raise them up to adulthood. And being that they're carnivorous fish, they eat other fish. So it's a lot of small fish being ground up into pellets to make fish for these farmed carnivores. That, that's really disgusting. <laughs> that's what they feed the, the eel? Ground up other fish? Exactly. When you're eating a carnivore, it has to eat other protein items. So we have fisheries going out gathering large numbers of small fish to make them into essentially what looks like trout chow, which uh, looks a lot like the kibble that my cat eats. I really didn't want to know that. <laughs> what, what about a, a nago, which is the sea eel, not the not the freshwater eel, but the, the sea eel? <laughs> For now, you're safe on a nago. We have not done a recommendation on that species yet. We're going to hopefully cover a nago in the next bit of time here. Oh, please take your time. <laughs> You know, it's like it's like the Matrix. I don't want to wake up. I don't want to take the red pill. I I like I want to eat sea eel. So, if I understand your report correctly, Rico, tuna might be the chicken of the sea, but eel is the veal of the sea. Right, except they they don't break their little eel legs. <laughs> and that's the dinner party download for this week. Yes. Special thanks to Jessica Dial and to Josh Berman, to Lassie Michellis, and the Marketplace crew who had a busy week for helping us set the table. And thanks as always to John Raby and Queen Kim. You should check out their show Off Ramp. Head over to kpcc.org and click on Off Ramp. We leave you as always with One for the Road, a song to play on your way to or departing from this weekend's dinner party. From their brand new album Moon Wink, this is the Spinto Band, and the song is called Summer Groff, G-R-O-F as in Frank. It's a marvelous night for a moonwink. Bon appetit. I won't lie, I thought of you when you weren't around, though I thought there was no thinking about what went on in that house you got on, in that house you got off was never resolved. I won't lie, I won't lie, I won't lie, I won't lie, I won't lie to your face anymore. So goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye. Oh, the name I can mean, she renounced gasoline, so the feel street she always did walk. And when feel she ran dry, she lay pants and a tighter and then a few times round the block. So goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye, so goodbye.
I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Your advertisement here.